0: At the tender age of seven, today's guest boldly declared she would do something great with her life. By 11, she had a sight firmly set on being the world's leading tennis player. And I think it's fair to say she more than delivered on both those promises. On the court, she won 39 Grand Slam titles, multiple Fed Cups, and spent a number of years as the top-ranked women's tennis player, but arguably, I think so anyway. Her greatest achievement took place well beyond the court. She was the driving force behind the professionalisation of women's tennis, playing an instrumental role in forming the Women's Tennis Association. Her tireless campaigning for equal funding and prize money is plain to see today. She's also the standard bearer to the LGBTQ community and continues to use that platform to fight injustice and advocate for a more inclusive society. It's really my huge honor to welcome to this podcast, the one and only Billie Jean King. Billie Jean, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today.
1: Well, thank you. And it's, it's uh, great to hear your voice. And it was wonderful meeting you. And I know you don't want to be called Lord Coe, but I do know you are Lord, Lord Coe. And beyond, you have so many titles. I don't know what to call you, but you told me to call you Seb when we met at Wimbledon. So that's why I will.
0: Billy, Sebi is more than fine, but I have to tell you, I think we've already agreed that titles are pretty meaningless in, in, in this lovely conversation that we're having and we're going to have. But let me just sort of digress for a moment, I remember with great pleasure sitting next to you in the Royal Box at Wimbledon a few years ago. Uh, and I know you don't like titles, but I felt like giving you one that day because when we kept, left the Royal Box and wandered into the grounds of Wimbledon, it was like walking with the Queen Mother. People were coming up to you, they were curtsying, they were wanting your autograph, they were wanting photographs, they were just so reverential towards what you've achieved. So for me, you'll always be the Queen Mother. Let me start where I always like to start on these podcasts, and that's to sort of probe at the outset the navigable pathways that sportsmen and women, those that I've had the privilege of chatting to on this podcast uh, follow, the the paths they tread, and particularly through those formative years where everything is being shaped. Uh, And like many I've interviewed, you were actually quite a late starter. I think it's fair to say that the Moffats were probably more into softball uh, than they were tennis. So how did you start that tennis journey uh, and why? Was it Why was sport so overwhelmingly almost obsessive for you?
1: Well, I think it's probably because of my parents, but particularly my dad. Uh, my brother I have a younger brother, uh, Randall James Moffat. Moffat's our birth name. but uh, He also played 12 years of professional baseball later. He announced at 10 he wanted to be a major league baseball player, which doesn't mean much to some, some countries, but in America, it, it means it's a big deal. We really love basketball. Baseball is
0: your national sport, isn't it? I mean, baseball yeah, is generally it, it, considered it, it, to be the American game.
1: It was the first one in the marketplace in the 1800s by far, yeah. and uh, it's over 150 years old now. So, anyway, we love basketball, actually. My dad was a basketball player. Um, he could, you know, my dad could, his name's Bill. I'm named after him, actually, because he was in World War II, and my mom didn't know if he's ever going to come home. You never know. And so she named me Billy Jean after my dad, uh, which is Willis Jefferson. So it's Billy Jean. Uh, that's why my name was very unusual back in the 40s and 50s, 60s. Now it's Billy's actually a very popular name for girls. Um, but we just love basketball. And we used to run out in the street a lot. You know, I, from Molly's tree to our tree. And we lived in a tract home. So And we had a great neighborhood of kids. And I just loved running. I loved playing every sport, football, American football, actually did play football later, but we didn't have much of that in our country. We're very new to football really. Uh, And so I just played everything and I loved it. And then in fifth grade, elementary primary school, I was sitting next to Susan Williams and she said, she looked at me and she loves sports too. And she goes, do you want to play tennis? (laughs) I said, what's tennis? And she says, you don't know what tennis is? I said, I have no idea. I said, what do you do? Well, she says, you get to run, jump, and hit a ball. And I said, well, I'm there. Because those are the three <laughs> things I absolutely love in sports. So she took me to her country club. And we, you know, she loaned me a racket. And I, I hit the first one over the fence and we say home run, when you hit it over the, it's like a <laughs> six in cricket. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so, So anyway, I really liked it. But I thought, you know, my dad was a firefighter. There's no way we can afford all this. We can't, you know, we're never going to belong to a club. And so Susan and I are also on a softball team. And she told the coach Val Haller, and she goes, "You know, I took Billy out to play tennis the other day." She says, "Well, you know, we have free instruction here every Tuesday." And I went, "Oh, wow! Now we're talking." So I went home and said, "Daddy, Daddy, Mommy, Mommy, I need to get a racket." And my dad says, "Well, how are you going to do that?" And I go you mean you guys won't buy it for me? And they said, nope, you're going to have to figure it out. You say you think you're going to like it, let's see how much. And so I went to all the neighbors, and they gave me nickels, dimes, quarters, and I saved $8.29 in a mason jar up the cupboard, and I said, i got to go get my racket. So I finally got my first racket, and the first time I went out to Houghton Park and took my first instruction from Clyde Walker, I loved him from the beginning. He was an older gentleman, I thought, at the time, probably in his 50s. and I just fell in love with it, but I also knew I'd found what I was going to do with my life, my destiny. And when my mom came to pick me up, I just was jumping up and down and just saying, "Mom, mom, mommy, I, this is it! I want to be the number one tennis player in the world." And she's like, "That's nice, but you have homework and you have things." You <laughs> know, she always kept my brother and me very, very grounded. And and uh, so anyway, I said, oh, "I want to go. I want to go home now and tell Daddy and Randall, and let's go." So that was it, it was off and running. And I was very fortunate because of the, um, the parks in Long Beach, California, we had free access to courts and free access to coaching. And that's what made the difference. And my brother also had the same. And I, don't, I cannot stress enough, like in, in Britain, um, of course, I, I wish they would go to a football pitch and take the two best kids with the hand-eye coordination and their, and their feet and the quickness and all and agility and just go get them in tennis because that's where um, you want to get kids that from all parts of life, you know, very rich people, very poor people. You want, you want that. And it's really good for kids to be around each other because they all teach each other different things and different qualities. And I, I really think it's important, but... Um, Most players in America are from public parks. 70% of tennis is played in public parks in the United States. And I really got, I just got lucky that Susan Williams and, you know, I talk about relationships or everything. (laughs) I'm sure glad that Susan Williams asked me to play tennis that day. She changed my life. She's on my blessing list every morning. I, I always wake up and do a blessing list. Susan Williams is on that blessing list because that changed my life for all time that she asked me to play.
0: Well, look, there, there are two things I, I pull draw from that. Firstly, I'm delighted to hear you had parents that sounded very similar to mine because my father was my coach, and mm-hmm. I was running effectively in plimsoles. Um, and I once said to him, when am I going to get a pair of running shoes? And he said, when you win a race. So I you actually go. ran. You would re- you'd remember these shoes, but I actually ran – my first major road race that I won in Dunlop Green Flash, and the uh, my <laughs> my kids now wear them and think they're very retro. I explained to them that I used to run 50 miles a week in those, those yeah
1: not, not not very supportive though right not, no, not yeah. the most,
0: support, not the I most mean, support we had these too. little
1: we had these little Dunlops thing also like they're like little slippers just running and they're so great because they're so light, no support, no oh just not good for you. The, the second
0: bit of that, your, your previous video, con- the conversation was actually interesting to me because I've always suspected that what held British tennis back for so many years was the lack of accessibility to coaching is,
1: correct. and
0: public tennis courts. I've spent a lot of time in the US. I've spent a, spent a lot of time in California. I just watch kids everywhere. And they're not playing in really expensive, well-heeled clubs. They do seem to have access. And of course... There's, there's also that matter of, the, of, of, of weather, because if you're playing in a sensible climate, you're not sort of chipping ice away from, uh, from the courts. But let, let, me, let me go to the court here, because you know, you'll, you'll be tired with these stats, but I just love them. 39 Grand Slam titles, 12 in singles, half of them on the grass at Wimbledon, uh, and I was there to see one of them. Seven Federation Cup wins, nine Whiteman Cup wins, and all this, and arguably one of the, in, in women's tennis, one of the, mo- one of the fiercest of, of generations because you played against Margaret Court, Virginia Wade, uh, Chris Everett, admittedly slightly latterly. You've talked about the importance, you know, you really talked almost immediately about the importance of the subusion of mentality and physicality. Where was your main asset? Because you weren't tall. You were five foot four. That's not an obvious obvious construct for a a tennis player.
1: Well, I think, first of all, my brother and I, because my parents didn't pressure us, they gave us time and space. um, We love pressure. We love the big moments. We love to have everything on the line. We enjoy it. We we welcome it. A lot of kid, a lot of young people just just cannot handle it, don't like it. But because my parents didn't care for any good, the only question they asked us is did you give it all you had? Did you try your best? And of course we that was easy. Yes. We gave it, we're very intense, um uh, and very competitive. But I, I love my parents for that. You know, looking back, I did we didn't my, my brother and I have talked about that how lucky we were. Now that we're older, we understand that what we that. They were amazing parents um, in that they wanted us to be healthy and educated, basically. Just they love the fact we're in sports because they thought it was healthy (laughs) and good for us and make us strong for the rest of our lives and have a productive life. So um, we're really lucky, but we just thrive on on, we like pressure, Uh, I think, mentally and emotionally. I was strong. uh, I'm very quick, very good off anything off the backhand, whether it's ground stroke or volley love, um, you know, I could hit a topspin or I could hit an American twist, which they call it in the old days when the ball bounces sideways. My coach, it, it said, talks about in the book, actually, where it's only for boys, you know, a lot of these things. And then I said, well, may I try it? And then, yeah, you go ahead and try it. And I could hit that the first time it was easy. You know, I can bend my back easily actually. It was, I never had trouble with my back. My knees were my problem. And, you know, I'm very agile and I can get down low and uh, get up back up quickly, you know, and, la- and I'll tell you where, where God was really good to me. And that was laterally. Uh, and when I'm at net, I, my lateral movement was was excellent. He was my forehand was shocking. But today, today, I, it, today is so much easier to hit a forehand because I it just it's much the way we were taught wasn't natural. We were taught very static and not dynamic enough uh, in the old days. And then those wooden rackets, ooh, are they heavy? And it's just, these rackets today are just so much fun uh, to, to hit a ball with, it's so much easier. The sweet spot's huge. And also uh, the information available, just every generation gets better. Um, that's another thing my parents taught us, that every generation gets better, uh, not only in sports, but in most things. And so that was, when I, when I saw Althea Gibson, who was the first black ever, to win a major in tennis, man or woman. I got to see her at the Los Angeles Tennis Club. And I knew what it looked like to be number one. And I'm really, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. Like I'm sure kids that watched you um, saw you. And I remember watching Bannister break the four-minute mile on our television at, at home. And it was grainy and black and white. And uh, uh, what's the guy? What's the guy? Who's he met? He meet, beat the... Uh, uh, well, he, he
0: got, he beat, to, to the record, it was actually, it was neck and neck, but he ran against, well, the guy that was really challenging him to be the first under four minutes was John Landy from Australia. Right. And then John had the, the fame, when, the, the year that... Um,
1: but whoever it was looked, and then he passed him on yeah. the other side of so, my dad. So,
0: yeah, you're referring to the Miracle mile. Which Correct, took place in Vancouver in the Commonwealth, then the Empire Games. And Bannister was just coming past Landy. Landy looked to yeah, Landy, the long time. And he let, he he let, he opened the door and let, uh, right. and let Landy through and let, but, I, through.
1: But, but when we're watching, I jumped up and I said, Daddy, daddy, he made a mistake. He looked and the guy's gonna, <laughs> that's why I passed him. You always told me never to look back, always go forward. I mean, yeah. I remember my dad teaching us because my dad also was also uh, did a little bit of hurls and we love track and field and, um, and athletics. So, I remember when I jumped up off the sofa and I went daddy daddy he made a mistake he looked you told us never to look look I remember that so clearly
0: uh, Well the, the lovely thing about this conversation is it's already taking me into some areas that I wasn't uh, I wasn't planning but uh, let me just pick up on something you talked about pressure uh, and the fact you love pressure and I've always believed that the the crucial asset between the good and the great is that you watch athletes, you watch competitors walk into that championship arena and they want to be there. They look like it's their home and they don't hide from it. And there are others who just look like they'd rather be anywhere else in the world. Do you think that there is a modern tendency to protect younger competitors from those pressured moments? And interestingly, if you think about the, and I, I, I welcome the dialogue around mental health. I think everybody does. It's a, it's a, it's a healthy discussion to have. But where is the balance in sport at the level that you played and the pr- pressure that you were under, and the current discussion about well, you know, pressure maybe, uh, you know, lead to some, some, you know, debilities around mental health where, where does that balance for you sit in that uh, discussion at
1: the moment well I've, I've I've actually been always been big on it we uh, in my day we didn't talk about it because we uh, I get I still get I get texts from my generation and younger generations you know just one or two generations and they go oh my gosh if we talk like this now the way the kids talk today we we would have been you know it would have not worked for us because the way the public would have received it they wouldn't have they wouldn't have liked it. We would, they would say, oh, you're soft or this or that. Uh, and we used to keep that among ourselves. But we certainly talked about it. Um, I think it's important to talk about it, especially with young people today, because they need to. And with social media, although they have the bullying and, and that's another challenge. But uh, I think it's good. It's out in the open. I think things, when they get out in the open, usually uh, people do better. They don't feel isolated, which is you don't want isolation. Uh, but growing, you know, we had these challenges, but we would talk among ourselves. And I think the way my mom and dad raised us uh, with this uh, is good because we talked about self-awareness also. Like if you're not feeling good, you've got to be aware of it. Sometimes young you know, people aren't even aware of it. So that's number one, to be aware of it. But and also it really takes courage to ask for help. And we were taught, you know, suck it up and keep things to yourself. And so I think it's much healthier today. I think people are more apt to go to a psychologist today or, or, uh, and I think coaching is really important, but I think coaches need to go through this. I think they need therapy. I think they should have to go through therapy. There's a lot of sports psychologists out there, but I find that most players I talk to, I think they need to go to a psychologist first and work on, work through some issues. And then you can also have your sports psychologist. But unless they're really educated and have their PhD and all that, I think it's really important to, um, I find if you, if they go to the psychologist, a lot of this stuff works itself out uh, as far as you don't need to support psychologists as much, but there's just basic things that I, I don't know. I knew kind of instinctively, I guess, or I don't know where I got it from, but I just knew that, you know, that rituals are important. And now they talk about the rituals and on the court and,
0: I, I don't it's know. It's, I, think
1: it's, 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 but I think it's good. I think it's good if we talk about it. I think it's yeah. very good to have things out in the open. So yeah. that in general, I think is good. It's better today. But I think there is so many people around these kids and they, and they are living through them and they're pushing them. Uh, and, and it's not right. You can't do that. You've got to just listen to the person that you're helping. I love coaching, by the way. You can tell. And just listen to them. And I, I, coach by asking questions. I don't coach by telling them. Billy, do you think it's tougher to coach now
0: than it than it's ever been because of all these other considerations? You know, when I I came through my sport, nobody had even heard of a sports psychologist. You rather received, you rather hoped that your coach was naturally a good psychologist. actually, most good coaches do get that right. But do you think it's tougher now to coach than it's ever been?
1: Yes, because there's so many outside. Um, pressures. I can't believe how, how they just need to give a person space so they can breathe. You know, they have their coaches, they have, they have their teams. Why do they have these teams? Because there's money. Everyone goes, why didn't you have a coach? Why didn't you have a team with you? I'm like, are you kidding? We're making $14 a day as an amateur. And I fought so hard to get professional tennis. So to be have integrity instead of getting paid under the table and I want I want our sport to have integrity I want our sport to and all sports uh, because I do love a lot of I just love all sports because I think they teach us so many of life lessons for young people I think it helps them in business I think it helps them in whatever they do with their lives it helps give you uh, that inner strength that I don't think you have unless you go through different there's different ways to get this inner strength but sports or something about, because you have to use all of yourself, your mind, your body. I mean, you really have to use all of yourself. I mean, it is, there's just no joke with the physicality and all the different things that I don't know. There's something really special about that experience to allow you to be the best you can be in life. You know, where you teach, you learn how to be resilient. You learn how to stay in a process one ball at a time is what I always told and there's just, I don't know, that you just take so much. And also you, you meet people that know how to win uh, in life, not just in their sport. I'm out I'm in life. And I think it really helps uh, each other. And also relationships are everything. It helps you get your first job usually. You know, you do get your first job by somebody that you know, usually a connection. So uh, that helps too. But, uh, I do think it's a lot harder to coach today because you have so many more uh, factors and i think social media can be an asset or a deterrent uh you know some kids get all into what people say about them and who cares it's like come on you guys you know but but you've got if you're a good coach you're going to help them get through that you're going to talk to them about don't worry about all these outside people telling you what to do and all that just you know and have some quiet time i think it's really important to have a little quiet time if you can I mean, I, as an athlete, I didn't go out that much. I used to go back to the hotel and put my feet up. I'm always thinking about resting and get, for the next day. You know, I'm, all, I'm just totally into it. But I was so pulled off the court um, that I don't really know how good I could have been as a player because I was spending, you know, I was only getting four hours of sleep during the uh, early, late 60s and early 70s to try to change our sport. I fought so hard to get us a professional sport. And we became a professional sport in 1968. Actually, Wimbledon uh, had a lot to do with it. It was good, finally. And but what I realized very quickly is the men did not want us. I thought we'd all be in this together. And I think, oh, this is so great. They're my friends. And my former husband, uh, Larry, uh, said, you know, if the game goes pro, the guys will want you out. And I said, no, they won't. They're my friends. And, I'm, you know, we play mixed, And we go out to dinners, dancing. He goes, Billy. They will not think you deserve one dime of this. I said, Oh no, he was right. Completely right. I was completely wrong. So that was a very shattering experience uh, and a tough time because I thought we're in this together. The guys were not interested. So even the first Wimbledon labor won a 2000 pounds and I won 750 pounds and I went, "Uh Oh, and then they, they started dropping tournaments for women. And Oh, it was so tough. And then nine. The, the, probably one of the most important stories that people should know is that there were nine of us, nine players that were willing to give up our careers to start women's professional tennis. And we're called the original the, the, nine. The original nine. Yeah. Right. This is probably the most important. And, and everyone puts the WTA with this and they're three years apart. That's what I, if you just, they're three years apart. But the, the most important thing we did was sign a $1 contract with Gladys Hellman, who was a publisher of world tennis magazine at the time and we had this one tournament in texas we were very upset with this tournament in la the pacific southwest so anyway we had our own tournament which we actually gave more money to the winner than the men's in la which and this was in houston and it was hilarious uh stan smith i think won the tournament he didn't even know that we were doing any of this until the hall of fame by the way we got inducted to the hall of fame just this year the only group ever in the history. And uh, I keep pushing that they should celebrate the ATP, which is the men's association this year and the women's uh, tennis association next year. But the original nine was September 23rd, 1970 at the Houston racquet club. And that is the birth of women's tennis. The way you know it today, we went through a lot of discussion, but we all, we all decided. And I said to them, if you want a lot of applause and a lot of money, we shouldn't do this because we're the first generation And first generations don't usually get very much. And so um, it's really important that the three things that we decided and we're willing to give up our careers, and that means never play Wimbledon again, the U.S. Open, is the number one, that that we were going to fight for that any girl born in this world, if she's good enough, would have a place to compete. Number two, that we'd be appreciated for our accomplishments, not only our looks. And number three, to be able to make a living uh, playing tennis, which we loved and had the passion to play. And we decided we're gonna go for it. And if we don't ever play again, so be it. But we're we're gonna try to make this happen. And it did happen in a big way. In December of 70, I said to Larry, I am gonna try to win hundred thousand dollars next year because I know everyone understands money. And if I can get up to a hundred thousand dollars, that is they'll it, hopefully people will watch start watching us and start watching this. Will will she make it to a hundred thousand? And I knew it was about ready to kill me because you get about 1800 if you win the tournament. Uh, and also there was one tournament that was a $40,000 tournament. If you won that, you won 10,000. So that was worth a few tournaments. And I thought I have to win that one tournament as well, or I won't make it. I made it the last tournament of the year in 71. I went over a hundred thousand. And that was probably the fifth most largest pay of any athlete in the United States. I was making a lot more than the greatest baseball players at that time, except Willie Mays probably. And, um, and a couple of others maybe, but it was huge news. You went, you know, president Nixon called me, it was all filmed. And uh, but that was the birth of women's tennis in the original nine. And Rosie Casals was on that. That you probably even know these people. I mean, you know, Nancy Ritchie and. Barkowitz and Judy Dalton Judy Dalton got to the finals but there's two Australians and they got suspended immediately when we signed that one dollar we got suspended but we didn't care and it went back and forth the suspensions uh, but those three reasons I told you are earlier we really believed in it and we're very fortunate that people had we went out and had to get people to run tournaments we said you'll probably lose all your money but this is for the future and we were very lucky that people and Larry and I own tournaments, which has always helped me be a better leader because I know both sides. I mean, you of all people understand this better than anybody that when you go into negotiate, you have to understand their side of the story. Yeah.
0: yeah completely. And,
1: and both, and both people have to feel they have won something when they get up from their chairs. And so that really helped me to own tournaments to be on the other side uh, of the coin and, you know, and the women decided I was their leader. We, it was a very girly thing. It was like, oh no, you do it. Oh no, no, you do it. Finally, they said, and they kept coming to me saying, you should be the one. I was number one at the time, which I think was helpful. And um,
0: I, I, you talked about the fact that, you know, in the height of your competition, you were getting about four hours of sleep a night. It doesn't surprise me because you were effectively at all at the same time, you were a promoter, you were an organizer. You were a marketeer, you were a lead spokesman, you were a legal representative, you were a competitive tennis player. And, you know, your career is outstanding, but for me, the indelible footprint that you left around uh, the activism, interesting, you talked about uh, some of the players that you you, you ran a whole list of them, you said, you know, Richard Nixon as well. I was actually in the presidential library I'm a bit of a political geek, I went to the Nixon Presidential Library the other day at your Belinda, and in about the third or fourth chamber, there is a photograph of you standing with Richard Nixon at some tournament or, you know, in, on, on some, probably a White House lawn, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll remember that because I'm going to interview you. Oh, he,
1: he, he gave me a trophy at Locust Valley, uh, Long Island. He gave me, he, he's also a president from California. Yeah, exactly. I'm, so it, that made a difference too.
0: So, look, I, I'm, I'm interested because nine is quite an important number here because you talked about the original nine, but while you were doing all this, you were also campaigning uh, for Title IX, which for mm-hmm. those who are not familiar with, the, uh, with American uh, political legislation, Title IX of the amendments, so the, the Education Amendments of 1972... Yes, no, so it was, was out there to protect people from discrimination based on, 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 on gender in, in education programs or activities that were in receipt yes. of, yeah, uh, of it's a right. That was a huge, I mean, the original nine, and that was, I think that was a huge moment because so much else that is now currently accepted. Interestingly, in athletics, we don't have any of this discussion. We've never had a discussion about parity of prize money. Any athlete for as long as I can remember, female athlete, has earned exactly, you know, so Elaine Thompson wins the 100 metres in Tokyo or in the World Championships. She would get exactly the same amount as you say, but we've never, ever had that. And what was interesting no, to he- me is you, you referred a moment ago to, to the men not being universally comfortable uh, about the changes you were promoting, but it wasn't universally popular Amongst some of the female tennis players at the time, the the, the road that you would, I mean, interestingly, Chris Everett, who were, uh, paradoxically went on to become one of the main beneficiaries of this, was no great supporter uh, of that uh, push to, for, for parity and equality at the time. Or am I a bit mean here?
1: Uh, I don't think, uh, yes, I think you'd understand some of the background because Chris was very young and her dad made the decisions oh, okay. for her. Otherwise she would have because she always, have- keeps apologizing to me i go chris you're 16 or 17 please i know yeah, your dad okay. made you know oh, your dad big, made no but she said that she feels bad and i said don't feel bad to this you're too young the other ones that you know i don't want to get into who wasn't very there was two or three that were very very difficult and not helpful who also benefited from what we did so i won't go into names because i don't care i want to keep going forward but um Title IX is brilliant because it was an education amendment. Yeah. And I'll make, it real, I'll make it real simple. It's only 37 words. Um, there were four main people, Patsy Mink, who was the first congresswoman that wasn't white, of color, and it's named after her. And then also Dr. Bernice Sandler helped a lot. And Edith Green from uh, Oregon is called Mrs. Education. But I also, one of my heroes is Senator Birch Bayh. And he got it through the Senate. And he actually wrote the words, I think. He helped, you know, they had to figure out how to get this short and sweet, as you know, in politics with these amendments and things. The essence of Title IX, as so everybody understands, it was an education amendment. It, for the first time, got rid of classroom quotas. For instance, if you're a woman and wanted to be, get your doctorate at Harvard, they only allowed 5% of the class to be women. So they had all these quotas for women in classrooms. And the second part in this 37 words, there's the word activity, but the reason just if you just follow the money, you understand it. Because for the first time, when a private or public high school, college or university received federal funds for the first time, they had to spend it equally on boys and girls. And what happened is a lot of our schools became co-ed because they were following the money. We were. Oh, well, if the federal government's going to give this money. We want it. So that's what happened. And then there's one word that was an afterthought in this. And that word is activity. So for the first time after 1972, women received athletic scholarships like the boys at colleges and universities. And that's why the 1996 Olympics, the American women did so very well. And they won gold in basketball, softball, so, uh, football. Because uh, or they, were soccer. Getting the, they were getting the full rides
0: at universities. Correct. So they got,
1: just like the men, they got a full ride, uh, yeah. Yeah. And got their education, but they started to get coaching and they played and they had, you know, they got the practice properly. And so that's where the talent pool for women's sports comes from. It's like with the WNBA, for instance, it, it's just getting better and better and better because of the talent pool at the colleges now it's had this 50 years we're celebrating title IX this year but a lot of people outside the united states like from britain or other countries come to the united states and get a scholarship so it isn't just for american kids so i, th- I think because uh, i meet a lot of people when i'm traveling they go oh you know i got i got to go to college in the united states and i got a full ride because of uh, of sports Title IX is the reason they have that. Especially as a girl, men always got scholarships before, and men obviously they didn't have quotas for men in the classroom. But that's now—that's why so many women now. Uh, there's actually more women at college and universities in the United States than men now. But that would never have happened without Title IX in 1972.
0: Can I can I pick up on a little bit of show business here? Because sure, you know what I. You know where i Where this is heading? Um, Battle of the sexes. I can remember watching that, getting up at some unearthly hour uh, to to watch this, uh, and of course it was the the challenge that uh, Bobby Riggs threw down to you. Correct me, did those ma- those matches took place in Vegas?
1: No, we played our match. Our particular match played was the Astrodome in Houston because oh, right. because yeah. they knew they they needed a place. Jerry Perenchio, who was the promoter, he also promoted like the Frazier Ollie fight in seventy one. Um, he wanted a place bigger than 20,000 because he knew he could get more than 20,000. Uh, and then we had 90, 90 million people watch that. I guess you were one of them outside. the
0: <laughs> must- I, I, anyway. I certainly was. And I remember you, you, well, you've been quoted. You talk about it in the book that uh, losing may have set women's tennis back 50 years. There must, I mean, beyond the showbiz and beyond the, you know, the, 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 the bragging rights, there was a very significant underpinning well, issue that had to be established here. Well, it was a pivotal moment.
1: It wasn't about just tennis. Stuff. Tennis was a very yeah. minor part of it. Yeah. Um, I, it. You have to remember, Title IX had just been passed the year before, yeah. 1972. So I wanted to make sure that stayed strong because I knew there was going to be lawsuits against it to try yeah. to weaken it, which happened immediately, by the way, in 74, just about not not immediately, but almost immediately in 74. But no, I, I, and also you have to remember the women's movement in the United States was in its second wave was huge. Uh, all this upheaval was going on. So this was really about social change for me when I was thinking about it. It wasn't about tennis. Uh, we're only in our third year of women's professional tennis. It was a very pivotal, important moment. And I knew I had to win. Is it a big deal that I could beat a 55 year old? No. It, athletically speaking, I knew that it, it wasn't a big deal, but what happened is I would not play him. He, he used to follow me around for a couple of years, but Margaret court played him. You know, she got a big check uh, for those days anyway, and she played him. And I told Margaret, I said, Margaret, this is not just a tennis match. This is huge. You have to win. She goes, okay, okay. I got it. I go, no, you, you have to, win. I can't saying, no, no, Margaret, you have to win. She heard me, but it was like, Oh, she, she just had a, she just totally could not get the racket through that day. I didn't, I saw the tape later. I just, I felt so sorry because we've all been there. You know, we've all choked and it's the worst feeling. And um, she lost one and two. She got killed. And I told Larry before her match, uh, I'm sure she'll win. But if she should lose, I have to play him. I don't have a choice now because we're going to be in, you know, our third year. We're going to, so as soon as Margaret lost, um, Larry started talking to Mr. Parencio. I said, but we're not going to announce it until after Wimbledon. Uh, and then, I mean, 73 was such a pivotal year. Four days before Wimbledon in 73, we formed our Women's Tennis Association. Uh, so it was like, this is four days before the tournament. And um, all this behind the scenes with the match and playing Bobby is going on. This is going on with you know with the WTA oh by the way we have to play Wimbledon oh okay and then I actually won all three titles that year I do not I think I was so happy that we finally had an association although I was very very concerned about my match with, with Bobby at the same time I was I don't know I just felt I don't know I felt like a new person because we had our association I knew we had one voice for the first time and I was just very, very excited because that took a lot out of a lot of us to make that happen. Guys, I cannot yeah. tell you how much we lobbied. We lobbied in the in, when we we're in the locker room. We lobbied. <laughs> it was a it, it, well, you know politics. You know how hard it is. So
0: you guys became good friends in, in the end. Who? With the you one. and Bobby.
1: Oh, I love Bobby. But see, I knew all about Bobby before he didn't know anything about me, which is typical. Um, I knew all about him. He was one of my heroes. You'd see. Sebby, so, I, mean, I love history. I appreciate it. When I was when I first started to play, I went and got a you know any book I could find on tennis, which weren't very many, and we didn't have Amazon.com in those days. Um, so I read every like three books in the library. Very little on girls, just boys, uh, men. But I just loved tennis. I memorized all the Wimbledon champions. I dreamt about playing at Wimbledon. See, in in my day, if you didn't win Wimbledon, you weren't number one in the world. So that was, you know, Wimbledon's it for me. And I used to dream about. It. I had books in bed with me. I've read all these different books on players, uh, and and mem- I, in the old days when I was very young, I could have told you every winner at Wimbledon in the mixed, and the doubles and singles. And I love mixed is my favorite. See, I love team sports, so mixed is my favorite. Doubles is my second favorite, and singles is my third. But I love them all for different reasons. But it's just, oh, I just, I just love tennis. I mean, I still love it. I still. There's nothing like hitting the ball. There's something magical about the way when the ball hits the strings and you feel it and you can hit a slice, top spin, flat, outside of the ball, inside of the ball. You know, all these things are magical because it just feels so great against the strings. I, there's it's something about hitting the ball. that is just, oh, I just love it. Let, let,
0: a slight change of direction here. You, you came out in 1981. You've no,
1: actually, I was actually outed sorry i didn't want to interrupt you but I'm, i was outed yeah, well
0: i was going to then say but actually that wasn't your choice um no. you s- subsequently had become well some would say a standard bear i would say an I- iconic figure in the lgbt community um and inside and outside of sport but that was in a very very different era you know the the world was not nearly as tolerant or as understanding or or well, frankly, no, as, they weren't uh, ready. As, as, as neutral about it now, that that must have been an extraordinarily interesting experience. And given your commercial head, the, the fact that you know many of the sponsors ran for the hills. I know Nike remained there and, and produced that that iconic poster, which is still considered to be groundbreaking in, uh, in in marketing. But this was a very different era and a very different type of experience, I guess.
1: Every sponsor dropped me. I got horrible. I should have kept the letters, but I threw them out. They were so horrible. Um, Calling me everything, slut, just terrible. And of course the financial, I had just signed, I was just going to retire. So I, uh, from tennis and I had all these great contracts and I was finally, finally, you know, for, for my generation, make the big bucks. And of course I love business. So I thought this will help business. And so I had to start over And it was terrible. And, you know, I had a publicist and a lawyer that didn't want me to say anything. And I told, you know, I spent 48 hours on the phone just saying, no, I'm going to tell the truth. I want to have a a media, you know, a press conference. And they're going, no, you can't do that. You just can't do that. Well, in those days, they were probably right. But I didn't care because I thought it was really, really important to tell the truth. And um, being not being able to tell the truth had been horrible. I still didn't know who I was, I still had this, I mean, I was trying to figure out, am I bi, am I gay, what am I, I don't know, I, I mean, I'm still married to Larry, but seeing women as well, I mean, it was just a terrible time for me, um, and it's probably put me back 20 years, at least, I mean, I went to an eating disorder in 95, uh, that's the place I really came to grips with, who I am, and everything's going to be okay, but boy, it was a long, long journey. I mean, I was out in 81. I went to Renfrew, which is my eating disorder place in 95. I had therapy three times, individual therapy three times a week, had couples therapy. And Ilana class my partner in life, my wife is was great. She stood by me, but she, she doesn't like therapy. And one of the things you had to do is couples therapy. And she went, what? What? I don't, what? It's like, I, I started laughing. She says, well, I'm going to keep my word, so I'll do it. And then I also had family therapy, but it was a long, long haul. And I'm so I'm so big on therapy uh, because if you get the right therapist, it changes your life. And uh, I still talk to my therapist from the from Marimfro. I still do. I think uh, therapy is really important. Uh, you know, it's like going to the emotional office. You know how we work, work, work. We go to the office, or we don't. Well, we work anyway nowadays. It depends where we are, and You work eight hours, 10 hours, you work at all these different things, and then you give yourself one hour a a week in the emotional office. I mean, it's very important that you make it into a daily uh, routine and be part of your rituals, To I'm big on meditation, big on all these things that uh, help you. And my mother always said, make sure you keep moving or it's over. And I think you probably understand this better than anybody since you're. Yeah, I do somebody. understand that sentiment. Yes, because my mother said that, I mean, she was 80 years old telling me this it was so sweet because she couldn't move that well, but she said, you've got to keep moving or it's over, Billy. And I, I, I really <laughs> take that. To, I really take, took that to heart, but no, but my journey has been uh, pretty charmed overall, but there's been some tough times and, and people that are out there that, are trying to decide when to come out or not to come out. Make sure you're around. There's is another thing that's really important that you're safe. Uh, safety is a big issue with this. But when you're ready, and I'm, I'm very big on never pushing. I'm very big on when a person's ready, their body will tell them. Is one of the things that we were we were taught uh, in our eating disorder place. When your body, when you're ready, your body will tell you. So when you're, if you feel up to it, make sure, and hopefully the family will accept you. And if they don't, then definitely find an extended family because you that way you get to choose who's in your family, but uh, hopefully your family. And also I knew it was really important for me, for me to give my parents some time. I, look at all the time I was taking to figure out who I am uh, in my sexuality. And so my parents uh, were homophobic, so they had trouble. But I thought to myself, I've got to give them time to figure this out too, because look how much time has taken me. Sometimes when somebody comes out and the parent or someone doesn't accept it quickly, they go, God, I can't believe that. Well, look how long it took you to come out or me to come out. So just give them time. And sometimes they come around. Other times they're not going to. And sometimes it can be very sad. But the most important thing is that uh, be your authentic self. They've done all kinds of studies on people that um, are hiding something at work and can't be their authentic self. They're only working at about 70 percent. So when you're ready to come out from on whatever your situation is and you can be yourself, your authentic self, then it's really important to get there because it's exhausting to try to measure your words all the time. Try to navigate this when you cannot just be who you are. So um, you finally get rested when you when you when you come out, you finally get. You just start to have peace within yourself and you feel uh, whole for the first time so it's a long haul but it's worth it. Billy
0: I'm so incredibly grateful for the time I've already trespassed into far too much of your time today and thank you for the the, the generosity of that time and for the candor uh, of the answers that you've given let me try and pull the knitting together if I may 200 career wins You single handedly, and you won't agree with me, but I'm saying it you single handedly drove uh, women's tennis into the professional era. You did so much else around that. You even, for goodness sake, had a song written about you by Elton John. You were the recipient of the Barack Obama uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom. I I don't even know where you will start because the next question I have to ask you is what is your proudest movement?
1: I don't know where I start, but. Elton just started his farewell tour again too. So I hope people go, I think he's going to be in the States now in Europe, maybe next year, but um, he's a dear friend. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, I always get back to friend to relationships. I think they're the most important thing. I don't know. That's really everything, but I think the presidential medal of freedom was huge. I was the first woman athlete, but I didn't get it for being an athlete. I got it for um, social justice and yeah. part of that being the LGBTQ Plus, President Obama was the first president to even mention LGBTQ, and also Harvey Milk uh, received a Medal of Freedom that day. Posthumously, his nephew was there. Uh, the great, you know, leader yeah. he got killed um, in the mayor's office. He and the mayor got shot, so it was a rough time. Because my, because Larry and I were actually living in Northern California, but I think I think having a great relationship with Lana, she's probably the most significant. Lana Kloss is my partner in life and wife and she was the number one tennis player in doubles. Um, she's from South Africa. She's fantastic in business. Um, we're both in business. We're trying to help women's sports and also social justice. Uh, we have a leadership initiative. So I, I think, um, it really gets, for me, it's people, it really gets back to relationships. So, you know, like even knowing you and meeting you, I'd love to know you better. Actually. I remember that time at Wimbledon, we'll go full circle here. I thought I said to Alana when I went back to sit in the Royal box, I said, I should talk to him because he's, uh, I'm very shy actually. So this has been good. This has been an icebreaker too. Uh, so I do always want to pick your brain and, and what you've done for sports and people is amazing. And you're just getting started. I think it's great. You had the Olympics, you were ahead of that effort um, in, in 2012, 2012, is that right? It was 2012. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. I've sometimes life goes so fast that it was a, it was a great Olympics. It was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I just congratulate you and I love the fact you're in the thick of sports business and, and trying to make a better world for, for kids and taking up sports and all the things you're doing. And, and another thing, when we started professional tennis, you know, we weren't in the Olympics, just, I just want to touch on this. And I said to, I said to them, cause we left the Olympics, I think in 24 over the amateur rule. I guess, um, and I said to the to the women when we were talking, I said, "Also, we'll be back in the Olympics if we get this to happen." And everybody goes, "What? What? You know?" Because we hadn't been in the Olympics, they didn't even realize we'd been in the Olympics. Okay, we were in the first in 1896, I think we were the, in there. So wow. the very first one of the modern Olympics. So anyway, I go, "You guys will be back in the Olympics as well." And they're going, "What? What do you mean?" I said, "You'll see." First of all, we're a global sport. We're going to be making money. We're going to get a lot of attention the men and the women, I mean everyone when I speak, and we'll be back, and sure enough, in 84, we're an exhibition sport, I was a judge for the Olympics, and then in 88, uh, Stephanie Groff won the gold, what we call the golden slam, because she won all four majors, plus the Olympics, and I got to be a coach, or captain, or whatever you want to call it, twice in the Olympics, in 96 and 2000, so I had a little bit of an Olympic experience, and it was fantastic, so but I told her, we'll be back in the Olympics. They're going, no way. What are you talking about? First of all, they didn't even know we'd been in the Olympics. But <laughs> that's, that's why I love history. Because those are the kinds of things that will come up when you're in the leadership position. So it worked. And it was great.
0: Billy, thank you so much. I really, really do hope our paths cross very soon.
1: Oh, they thank will. You. Maybe at Wimbledon. And thanks to everyone that made this happen. Thank you. My pleasure.
0: Thank you you've been listening to extraordinary tales
1: and extraordinary times brought to you by CSM